So how many of you, uh, whenever you think of the prayer that we heard uh, read today, uh, call it the Lord's Prayer? Most people. How many of you call it the Our Father? Anyone? Okay. <laughs> Marilyn does. Okay. <laughs> so um, traditionally, uh, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer is called that in the, in the Protestant church because the Protestant church emerged at the time that the printing press was created. And so titles that are given to things that we all know, so like the Pledge of Allegiance or even uh, song titles that are not necessarily uh, a lyric of the song are something that we do more in literate cultures. And then in oral cultures where things are transmitted um, orally and then memorized, uh, we often refer to those things uh, by the first line. And uh, so whenever we think of this prayer, it's maybe important for us to remember that it's a prayer that is, uh, was passed on um, through by people even that, that maybe didn't know the scriptures that well. And so we, we are very familiar with this prayer. But today I thought we could look at it a little bit more closely and try to really unpack uh, what it is that Jesus prayed. Um, first, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about prayer. The, the pr- pastor who officiated the wedding, that uh, Marilyn, my wedding, is now a church planter in Missouri. And uh, I usually I get uh, fundraising emails from him every month or so. And they're the sort of thing that you would expect. Uh, they're updates, requests for prayers, uh, statements of financial need. But last March, he put a, um, an unattributed quotation at the start of the email, which has really stuck with me. The quotation said, every time we pray, supernatural things happen, always. Now, that always kind of jolted me for a minute because at first I questioned it. I have had lots of times when I've prayed for something and I've yet to see answers supernatural or otherwise to my prayers. But then the intent of this sort of settled in. I I began to realize that if I believe that prayer is actually talking to God and if I believe in the God I claim to follow, every time I pray, the things that I'm praying are escaping from the material world, the material universe, and going to the throne of God. We're given an image of what this looks like in the book of Revelation uh, when John writes that the four living creatures and the 24 elders that are surrounding the throne of God um, fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So every time we pray, there are creatures in heaven, as pictured by John, who are offering those things to God, those prayers to God, as if they're incense before his throne. If I really believe that, then prayer is a pretty amazing activity. Every prayer is a supernatural event. I'm afraid, though, that in spite of this amazing reality that I say I believe in, I find prayer really hard. And I also actually think public prayer is especially hard for me. Public speaking doesn't really scare me, um, but uh, leading things like a congregational prayer is always kind of difficult. When Marilyn and I plan service, and I always say, can you, can you pray? I'll read scripture, but I don't really want to pray. Um, I have trouble knowing what to say, um, and Jesus' disciples seem to have had the same problem. So the, the prayer that we uh, know as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father is repeated twice in the Bible, once in the book of Luke and once in the book of Matthew. And so we read the context today in Matthew. But in Luke, Jesus has been praying, presumably for a while during the morning, and after he finishes, one of the disciples, we're not told who, comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray, like John taught his disciples. Now, the John they're talking about is John the Baptist. And earlier in the book of Luke, we learn that the Pharisees and John's disciples were always fasting and praying. 
And so the disciples' question might be a request for how to pray impressively in public. He's both, he's using the opportunity to see, hey, Jesus, you know how to pray, teach us to pray. But it also seems like the, as John taught his disciples, might have with it some sort of sense of the disciple wanting to know how to pray impressively in public. The prayer that's offered as a response, after all, is not a kind of private prayer, but it's one that is spoken on behalf of a group. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. In the passage that we're looking at today, in the context that Matthew puts this prayer, it's actually a contrast to the hypocrites who Jesus says pray in public and with many words in order to appear more holy. Now, we, we talked a little bit about how the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father came about in an oral culture, and in an uh, oral culture like Israel in Jesus' time, the ability to extemporaneously speak well in public was highly valued. The disciple might have been asking for something like uh, Aristotle's teaching on rhetoric for prayer. If you know uh, Aristotle, he has this whole book on how to speak well and how to convince people. And maybe the disciple is saying, teach us the same, the same kind of thing. Teach, give us a model for how to pray in public. Jesus' example, though, is to keep the prayer short and directed at God, not at anyone else who might be hearing. So we see the form of Jesus' prayer, but the fact that the prayer is offered twice in the New Testament and it's given in almost exactly the same words, we can assume that the content probably matters as well. So uh, Jesus' example is an example both of how to pray, but also what to pray. So it's how the form and also the content, what to pray. And as I said, it's such a familiar prayer that it's really easy to go into autopilot whenever we're, we're praying it. But to combat this this morning, I thought we could look carefully at each phrase in the short prayer and then try to pray together through some of those phrases. So we'll begin with the Our Father, the title that in oral cultures the prayer has. Um, in the Old Testament, most prayers begin with an address to the God who is the God of the person's ancestors. So we see things like, O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. And occasionally we see someone using the personal name for God, Yahweh or Yahweh or Yehovah in some translations. It's usually rendered in all caps as Lord in English Bibles. Now, it's not unusual or not unique to the New Testament that God would be thought of as a father, but he's usually not addressed that way, uh, at least not at the beginning of the prayer. In Isaiah, Isaiah talks about that you, O Lord, are our father. But Jesus' beginning to address God as father is a sort of bold statement. In fact, in, in John, the book of John, the gospel of John, uh, John tells us that the leaders in Israel tried to kill Jesus because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, you, you may have heard sermons before where someone claims that the word um, in Aramaic or Hebrew that Jesus sometimes uses is Abba, is a childlike word like daddy. And from what I understand, that's not actually the case. It is true in modern Hebrew, but in uh, old Aramaic or in classical Hebrew, Abba just meant something like dad or father. It wasn't especially like a, a baby talk, but it also wasn't especially formal. It was just what you call the person who is your paternal person who gave you birth. Um, it's not, uh, yeah. Um, now, a father, though, in a patriarchal culture like first, the first century would have been someone who demanded respect and maybe even inspired a little bit of fear that making a request of a father would involve a higher level of expectation that uh, you're going to get what you asked for than you might get if you were just writing a letter to a king or a governor and hoping that he would pay attention. A good father would not dis disappoint his children with bad gifts or ignore them entirely. And so we should remember that context with every, 
every request that follows. And in fact, after the opening, our Father, everything else that follows in the Lord's Prayer is a request. Now, we might miss this, though, if we look at the uh, English version, because the next line, hallowed be your name, is such an unfamiliar way of phrasing something in contemporary English. Um, We keep it because, as I said, the prayer is so familiar that the various translations along the way haven't wanted to stray too far from the King James Version because everyone knows the King James Version, and if you're looking in your text in Matthew, you get kind of upset if it's not what you think the prayer should be. Um, but, but Hallowed Be Your uh, Name is, is a, really a, a 17th way, uh, century way of saying something. Um, it's, a, it's a request. It's not a statement of fact. I think often I read that and think it means, uh, God, your name is holy or your name is hallowed or something like that. In fact, it's a request that, uh, to say, make your name holy or make your name be kept holy. It's sort of the same phrasing as uh, thy will be done. It's a passive verb, but it's saying, uh, may this thing happen. Um, and if you think of the prayer as a flow of ideas, it, it follows the opening of calling God our Father. So God begins, or Jesus begins with this really for, uh, informal way of addressing God as Father. And then he says, but may your name be kept holy. He doesn't even speak the personal name of God in the opening of the prayer. I think, though, that in this context, God's name means something more than just the holy word that identifies God. But it also means something like God's reputation. You talk about someone's good name. And so I think we're, we're praying that God's good name, God's reputation, will be kept holy. And we're asking that his holiness be recognized throughout the world. It's sort of similar uh, to the story in John 12 when Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus turns and says, that voice was for your benefit, not for mine. Um, so, um, so may your name be kept holy is a similar kind of prayer, I think. There's nothing that can damage the intrinsic holiness of God's name, but we pray that God will not his, allow his name to be slandered by the actions of those who bear it. So we're praying that God's name will be kept holy among his people, that we will be good ambassadors for God, that God's reputation will be kept holy. And I think it also might be a bit of a prayer for mercy. In the Old Testament, God would often spare his people for the sake of his holy name. In Exodus 32, uh, after the whole golden calf thing, and Moses came down, comes down and breaks the, the Ten Commandments, um, he, uh, God is about ready to destroy the people of Israel. And Moses convinces God, uh, seemingly in the text, to spare them because uh, to destroy the Israelites would be to, dis- to damage God's reputation among the Egyptians. And in Ezekiel 36, God says to Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, these good things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. You've made it unholy among the nations where you have gone, but I will show the holiness of my name. I've been trying to think, I was trying to think as I put this sermon together of a good example for, for reasons that people would make choices based on their, the holiness of their name or not in, uh, in modern society. And I went through a couple, but this is the one I've settled with, and forgive me, it's super geeky. Um, I, I love Google products. Um, I use Gmail and Google Docs and YouTube, and I love the way that they make these tools, that Google makes these tools really easy to use, both for those who barely know how to turn on a computer, but also for computer programmers who can build things on top of them. So if you have, yeah, you can write programs that use Google Docs. Let's just leave it at that. Um, However, whenever I write a computer program that I hope will last for a while, 
I don't usually use Google because they also have a really bad reputation for suddenly getting rid of products that aren't performing well. Uh, Google Reader, Google Plus, Picasa, Google Fusion Tables are all products that maybe some of you know of that Google has created, uh, but have been suddenly taken away. And any software that depended on these things suddenly doesn't work anymore. Uh, Google probably felt these products didn't provide enough value to their company, or maybe some of them, like Google Plus, was even damaging to it in some way. But by getting rid of it, the computer programmers learn not to trust Google because their creations that they've built on top of the stuff that Google created is no longer there. So in the Lord's Prayer, we pray that those who bear God's name, who have a, the God brand on them, will bring honor to it. And also, unlike Google, God won't wipe out those parts of his creation that bear his name just because they aren't performing well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so often in sermons... Um, we don't actually get to practice the application of the message until at least coffee time. Um, usually, we, I have to wait till I see someone and then pretend that I want to be nice or whatever, or you know, actually be nice. Yeah, um, right. Um, but uh, never mind. But in a in a sermon on prayer, uh, we can actually do this right in the service. Um, so together, let's let's take about a, a minute or so to pray that God will make clear the holiness of His name and will keep His name holy. I think actually this time through, if someone, if a couple of people want to pray aloud, and then I'll, I'll close this. So let's do this for about a minute or so, I guess. Dear God, thank you for giving us the privilege of bearing your name, and I pray that we will make it holy this week. So the next request is the same sort of structure in Greek. Um, and I should say, by the way, uh, that I'm quoting from Greek, but Jesus probably didn't pray this prayer in Greek. He probably prayed it in Aramaic. So we're getting a translation already from the original. Um, but it's a translation that's probably pretty close because Matthew and Luke both use almost exactly the same words when they're quoting the, the, um, the prayer. And I think it's one of those things, a prayer is something that gets transmitted and memorized. And so both of them probably had in mind the Aramaic translation and maybe even had a Greek translation that they were both working for it from to stick into the, the passage. So even though we're working from a translation from what Jesus actually said, it is, I think, fairly close. We probably can assume it's fairly close to the Aramaic that Jesus used. So a, a painfully literal translation of the first few lines of the Lord's Prayer might be something like, be made holy, the name of yours. Come, the kingdom of yours. Be made done, the will of yours. So that it's all ending with this idea of, this thing of yours, do something with it. Um, and asking that God's kingdom come is the next one. And actually, if you think about it, it's a pretty seditious kind of prayer. It's a request that the current government be replaced with the government of God our Father. It's saying, please invade this place and make it your kingdom. Um, and yet, in Luke 17, Jesus suggests that the kingdom of God is a different kind of empire. An empire of conquered hearts rather than overthrown nations. Luke explains, uh, or writes, um, once on being asked by the Pharisees, when would the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So th there will come a day, I believe, when the dead are raised and the old order of things has passed away, but the kingdom of God is not simply approaching in some indeterminate future. It is, as theologians like to say, already and not yet. 
just as God's name is already holy, so his kingdom has already come. But we pray that it further infiltrates our society and most especially our own hearts. And we pray that God's kingdom, the kingdom in which, as Dick talked about earlier in this sermon series, in which the, the peacemakers and the poor in spirit and the merciful are all truly blessed, comes more fully. Um, so let's pray that real quickly. Uh, would maybe two people pray that God's kingdom will come. Jesus follows this one with another request that uh, something of God's happen, that your will be done. This also might feel like a bit of an unnecessary prayer. God's will is one of those things that can hardly not be done. And yet within certain parameters, it does seem like God delegates some part of his will to us and allows us to make choices. A sin, after all, is at least at the most micro level, the frustration of God's will. Now, he can work our sin into the overall plan. So like a mistaken brushstroke in a painting, um, the, the painter might be able to work that mistaken brushstroke into something really beautiful. Um, but it's at least at some small level not what the artist originally intended. Um, but if we assume, as most, uh, most orthodox theologians have for the last 2,000 years, uh, yeah, that to go against God's will is to, uh, to sin is to go against God's will. There are millions of times every day when God's will isn't done. I have in mind an image of God's will as something like a big coloring book. And uh, God gives us the option to complete the picture by coloring uh, in, in the lines. Uh, the picture is his, but we have the option to participate in the way it's completed. Now, and he also may give us some directions. He may say to pick up that uh, picture of a purple crayon and color the elephant with it. And we can disobey and grab the red crayon instead. But the elephant is still there, and God's will is still ultimately satisfied. Um, In the book of Esther, when the Jews are facing a potential holocaust from the king of Persia, Esther, who's married to the king, um, is asked by her cousin to intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. And her cousin Mordecai says, if you stay silent, Relief from the Jews will come from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So Esther could grab the red crayon. She could refuse to do God's will, but God's will to preserve the Jewish people would still happen. So Jesus prays, though, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I assume that in heaven, God's will is done perfectly down to the most minor detail. That is, it's not the outlines that are done, not the elephant that's drawn, but every color is exactly as God would want it. And to pray that God's will be done on earth as in heaven means to pray that the will of the Father is not done just, not just done generally, but also specifically. And like other acts of obedience, our prayers might be part of the completion of that perfect will. As I pray for God's will to be done, I actually in some way participate in the completing of that will. And prayer is so powerful that like a lot of the other things that God allows us to do, that he gives us the agency to do, it might even be that God sometimes is willing to at least in some way grant requests that are contrary to his perfect will. We see this potential in the Garden of Gethsemane. When praying for this uh, sermon and preparing for the sermon, I realized that I'd forgotten that just before the crucifixion, Jesus actually prays three times. I always think of just kind of one big long prayer in the garden. But there's actually three prayers, and the first one is different than the second two. The first time that Jesus prays, he says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup, may the the crucifixion, pass from me. And yet not as I will, but as you will. And as we probably remember, he goes away and finds his friends asleep. And when he returns to praying again, 
something seems to have changed because he prays this time, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Between the two prayers, he seems to have received an answer that the cup of suffering could in fact pass away from him, but that it would remain for humanity to drink unless Jesus emptied it. In the first prayer, Jesus' will is not necessarily the Father's will, but he's willing to accept it. In the second prayer, Jesus seems to have aligned his own will with that of the Father, if under the condition that there's truly no other way for the cup to go away. He, he wants the cup to go away and is willing to do it if there's no other way for it to, to be taken. Now, it's impossible to know what would have happened if Jesus had not prayed, thy will be done. But I don't think it's um, completely impossible to think that this simple prayer of submission in the garden was a necessary part of our redemption. Submission to God's will can be terrifying, but it is, I think, a necessary part of dying to ourselves. The good news, the truly good news, is that God is completely good. And so ultimately, if God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, then earth will be heaven. It may mean, though, that the old order of things must pass away, and some of those things die painfully. Let us pray now silently, uh, considering those things that we're holding on to and sincerely hoping that God lets us keep. And if you're able, pray that if these things must be crucified for heaven to come, that God's will be done. And I'll close this in a minute. Father, I pray um, with trepidation, thy will be done. So we now move into the only material request of this prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Now the phrase daily in daily bread or the word daily in daily bread is one of those strange ones that's probably evidence that this is a translation from Aramaic. The word daily as used here is only used twice in all of the Greek literature or Greek texts that we have from this period. Um, it's the, the two places that it's used is in Matthew and Luke in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we don't have it in Plato or Socrates or any of the plays. It's a strange word. And the word kind of literally means something like the on top of tomorrow bread. Um, so the, probably meaning something like the bread that we need before today becomes tomorrow. Um, and so it's probably the Greek translators trying to fit an Aramaic idea into Greek where there wasn't an exact one-for-one translation from one word to the other. Um, Now, while I live and act as if I felt that planning for tomorrow is wise, if I only lived by what I've learned from the Sermon on the Mount, I might decide that this was the wrong way to live. Jesus is here saying something akin to what he preaches later in the sermon, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own of its own. Ask God only what you need for today. And I I have to confess that I I don't have enough faith to live this way right now, nor am I completely convinced that we should abandon all planning for the future. But I I say this, I I say that that I'm not convinced that we should abandon planning for the future without a great deal of New Testament backing. So if anyone uh, wants to contradict me after the service, I'd love to talk. I do think, though, that we should temper whatever planning we might feel called to with this command not to worry too much about tomorrow and expect from God only what we need for today. I'm reminded of the the famous, at least in Christian circles, story of the missionary George Muller. You've probably heard a version of this story before. George Muller ran an orphanage in England in the 19th century. 
And the story goes that one day the house mother of the orphanage came to him and told him in the morning that there was no food for breakfast for the 300 children that were in his care. Now, I have to assume that she had warned him of this problem before, but he'd not yet solved the problem, and now the moment of truth was here. It was time for breakfast, and the kids were supposed to go off to school, but they were hungry before then. And so before he told them to go to school, he had them gather all in the dining room, as usual, and ask them to prepare for the meal. In some stories, he has them pray grace for the meal. And the story goes that a baker came in and told him that he had baked extra bread for today, and he felt like he should bring it to the children. And a few minutes later, a dairyman came in and offered milk. And so the kids uh, ate their breakfast before going on to school that day. Now, I'm a cynical and suspicious person, and I share this story with more grains of salt than you'd find on a food cart pretzel. And yet, I, um, I confess that I've actually experienced divine provision like this in the past. Um, a friend calls out of the blue just at a time whenever I feel like I really need to talk to someone. Or I increase my charitable giving during a time of financial strain, and I find that my bank account increases rather than decreases. Um, I'm not currently at a place where I feel like I need to ask for my daily bread without some assurance that it will be on my table in any case, but actually I, I kind of am. I've witnessed so often the fortunes, the fortunes of the powerful and the wealthy, both broadly in society and also within my own very small sphere of work, are taken from them suddenly. Whether we know it or not, we all actually live paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth, dependent as George Muller on the food that we need to feed ourselves and our dependents. Let's think today about what we actually really need for the rest of today. And even if we mistakenly believe that we already have it, ask God for it. And we can do that silently in the next few minutes, a few seconds. And Paul quoted the, um, the pagan play uh, about, I think it was about Zeus, saying that in you, the true God, we, move and, we live and move and have our being. And I, I thank you for that, and I, I pray that you give us today all that we need to live and move and have our being. Um, so the next request uh, is one that often trips us up whenever we're saying this prayer together. So um, how many of you, whenever you pray this prayer, pray, forgive us our trespasses? So I would say, I don't know, maybe about a fourth of the people. How many say, forgive us our debts? Forgive us our sins. Anyone? We're pretty evenly divided. Does anyone say anything else? <laughs> our transgressions are. Um, well, I, the the answer in Greek is it's actually debts. Um, now, the the, the uh, transgressions or, or trespasses uh, comes from the verse that follows. Whenever Jesus says, uh, "For if you get forgive those who," and I think the NIV renders it as uh, sin, but the word is it's not amartia, which is the usual word for sin. It's a, a word that has to do with transgresses or oversteps a boundary with you. Uh, then God, you should, if you don't forgive those that transgress against you, God won't forgive you when you transgress against Him. But that's not actually part of the prayer. In the prayer, the word that's used in both Matthew and in Luke is a word for debts. And it's actually kind of interesting. It's an interesting metaphor if we consider, again, that this is a translation from Aramaic. Now, I've not studied Aramaic, but from what I understand, the words for debt and for love are essentially homophones. So they could be mistaken for the same word if you're just listening, as you would, as they would have in uh, the original audience. Um, 
So the idea, this idea might be present in Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, Paul would have spoken Aramaic, although he wrote in Greek to the Romans, and said, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt of love to one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. We also get this, um, this homophone probably in the story of the moneylender in Luke, where uh, the one moneylender forgives, the moneylender forgives one person a big debt and the other person a small debt. And then Jesus asks, which of these two will love the moneylender more? So that there's a play on words of debt and love there. And I was reading one commentary. um, uh, It was a web commentary, so take that with that grain of salt again. But um, uh, that this might actually be, um, one translation of it might be, forgive us as we forgive those who we love. So think about the way that you're quick to forgive those or to let kind of slights pass by on those people that, from those people that, that you love that are part of your family or that you care deeply about. And we, it could be that Jesus is asking, or at least part of what Jesus is asking, is that we ask that God will forgive us as quickly as we forgive those that we love. But, of course, he follows that with the passage, that the transgression thing, that uh, it does seem like there's implicit in there that we're, we're asking, we're understanding that God will uh, apportion his forgiveness in some way, uh, in the same way that we apportion forgiveness to others. Um, debts, though, is an intentionally chosen metaphor, and I think we should consider this as we pray through the Lord's Prayer. Who do we feel owes us something? Or maybe to continue the Aramaic uh, plan words, who do we feel should love us more than they currently do? Are we currently willing to assume that debt? to accept that we're never getting that money back, um, that we're never getting the respect that we feel that we owe, that we're never getting the love that we think is deserved to us, and being okay with that and releasing them from that debt to say, you don't have to pay me back anymore. That, That debt is done. Take a few minutes to think of someone who you think might owe you something, whether it's money or love or respect. And let's pray together that God will forgive us in the same way that we release those people from the debt that is owed to us. So let's pray. Dear God, forgive us our debts as we release those who are debtors to us. So finally, we come to one of the most problematic requests in the Lord's Prayer. It's two related requests. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil, is how it's phrased in Greek, or the evil one is what we can assume. Um, it may seem odd that we have to ask God not to lead us into temptation. The book of James tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he ever tempt anyone. And recently, Pope Francis is currently working to change the English translation in the Catholic Church to abandon us not when in temptation. Um, That's not a particularly accurate translation either, though, and, and to my mind, not much theologically better because Jesus tells us that he will be with us always and we won't allow, he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Um, so in either case, we're praying for something that seems like it's unlikely to happen. Um, but the word, if we look at the word here, the word in, uh, for temptation in Greek is the same as the word for a testing or a trial. My Greek teacher in college told us that this phrase could probably be translated as something like, don't lead us into uh, the time of testing like you did with Job. Um, so don't make us like Job. Um, don't uh, deliver us from the evil one. So if you know the story of Job, 
um, uh, Job, Satan comes to, to God and says, hey, see Job. He's, uh, or actually God says, hey, see Job. And Satan says, yeah, he's great, but he goes, it's only great because he's doing so well. And can I uh, make it really hard for him and see if he really loves you? And God says, okay. Um, so in this, in this prayer, we're saying don't, don't do that with us. Um, don't lead us into that time of testing. Um, but deliver us from Satan. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes about a man that, that Paul has handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Um, and so there are times when, for the sake of our souls, a time of testing or trial is necessary, but it's not a fun period, and Jesus is advising us to pray against it. And this is actually the way that Jesus ends the prayer in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts in both Matthew and in Luke. Later, Christians added a kind of doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and if you're Anglican, forever and ever. Um, but the earliest texts don't actually have this, this phrase. Um, so we're, we're left then with, uh, don't lead us into the time of testing, but deliver us from the evil one. And I know that when I preach, I'm always a bit afraid of what God will want me to obey as a result of what I've laid on to others. And I know I've, I've laid a lot on all of us today. So let's take a few minutes uh, together to ask God, again with the preface of thy will be done, to spare us whatever tests can pass from us and to deliver us all from evil. Um, we can do this aloud, and I'll close after a few minutes. Dear God, I thank you that you are our good Father and that you care about us and um, and I do pray that you, the powerful creator of the universe, will deliver us from the time of testing, from the evil one. And God, I thank you for this example prayer. And so I, I think that I, I would like to pray all together um, through these words of your son. Um, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus.